It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. My name is Yehuda Kurtzer. I'm president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America, and we're recording today on September 10th, 2020. Thanks for bearing with us through a hiatus in the month of August. As you know, the Shalom Hartman Institute ran a wild array of hundreds of programs with thousands of learners for the month of August, and we took a little break from our show, and we're back in preparation for the high holidays, which are coming up in the next couple of weeks, and a new Jewish year that's emerging upon us. For our first guest of this season of Identity Crisis, I'm really excited to be talking to my friend, someone who I've done a lot of Jewish learning with over the years, uh, learned with and learned from, Abby Pogrebin. Abby is a journalist, a writer, an author, a public figure who is a renowned interviewer and also has put out a couple of really powerful books about who the Jews are in America and increasingly about Jewish religious life in America. And we're prompted this week actually to be talking to Abby because of a series that she's writing, interviewing, and curating for the foreword called Still Small Voice. 18 Questions About God, in preparation for the month of Elul, which we're in the midst of now, right before the High Holidays. And it's a powerful opportunity for us to not just talk about that series, but to talk about God, God's self, and to talk a little bit about the state of Jewish religion in America around the time of this pandemic. So first of all, Abby, thanks for being with us, and thanks for curating this conversation. Let's, um, what's this about for you, this series? I mean, you're both curating the series and you're also kind of hanging around in the background of it because you're the person asking the questions. But it's a pretty bold thing to say we're going to get 18 different rabbis, all different denominations, different political voices to get them to talk pretty personally and intimately about God. And I'm wondering, a view of the asker, why a series about God? Why now? Um, what's this about? Yeah. And first, I want to make sure to, to make clear that it's not just clergy. It's also folks like you. I'm so glad you're Part of it, who either are scholars or, in one case, there is going to be a cantor's voice. I got plenty of feedback. At where are the cantors? And as you can see from that feedback, first of all, Jews are never shy about feedback. But what is true about the hurdle in doing this, as you know, is that there are a million teachers that I think could have been my guides through this. And trying to to pick those who I think are going to make this not only come alive, but frankly, make it feel urgent right now, was part of what guided me in terms of kind of curating the voices here. Um, so I want to start by giving kavod to the fact that I could have called a lot of people. I really was aiming for diversity of opinion and background and also kind of philosophy when it comes to the way people approach the divine. So the why of it is honestly, this has been something that I think has been roiling inside me for a long time without my admitting it, which is that I've taken a deep dive, as you know, into the Jewish calendar and not just why these exist and where these holidays came from. A lot of people don't realize how recent many of them are, but also why have they endured? And that was my last book and my last series for The Forward. But in doing that, 
what was kind of missing, I think, kind of conspicuously, was spirituality, in a way, God. Where is God in these holidays? Where is God in Shabbat in particular? You know, and why do we often, in a way, shy away from those conversations? And I would kind of go to the mat for people who say, we talk about God all the time. I actually don't think God is in the conversation um, that often. And I, I don't move in every Jewish circle, but as you know, quite a lot of them, um, just as a journalist and as a journalist going to many Jewish spaces, whether they are either conferences or synagogues or federations, the speeches and the sermons and the newsletters and often what the dialogue is doesn't include a lot of God in it. And part of my investigation here was why is that such tricky territory uh, for Jews? So that's always been something that I wanted to explore and felt, frankly, that it was a little bit audacious to try without being ordained and without having the scholarship that folks like you do. And the other piece of now is clearly the pandemic. I shouldn't say clearly, but for me, there were so many analogies uh, to a plague, and it wasn't just when the run-up to Passover. So many were talking about the biblical imagery or proportions of what we're living through, and then piled on the protests, which also had not necessarily a biblical frame, but a sense of upheaval. And so the idea that I wanted to talk to those who have to talk about God more regularly, not those who have necessarily written books about God. There are obviously a trillion, and they're important. But those for whom... God has to actually be in the conversation either internally or externally on a much more regular basis. One of the in, in one of the interviews you talked to Rabbi David Wolpe and he made a similar critique, which is that God isn't in enough of our conversations. A critique I think he's specifically offering of the liberal denominations because he's familiar with them, but you might say that it extends across the denominational spectrum. And he said something interesting, which was he thinks it's not there because it's easier to create pluralistic spaces without talking about God, like God narrows things, you know, it closes out secular Jews, it closes out others. Do you think that that's why? Do you think that it's just easier to create community? Because I, I wonder whether there's other stuff going on there as well. I don't think we're as honest as we should be or could be about the barriers to God in Jewish life. And that means, let's start with the word. You know, Laura Geller is one of the, the reform rabbis in my series, and she's more blunt than I expected her to be, just about how God and the liturgy itself is often in the way of God for people. And we can argue a lot about whether that's sacrilegious. I worried that it might be received that way. But I think she's hitting on something very true for a lot of the Jews I know. I'm not just talking about reformed Jews, although that's often the sort of lazy, facile assumption. I think there are Jews who feel very spiritual and who are observant, for whom the language around the divine is a roadblock. And I think that's just to start with, and I think Wolpe was acknowledging that. He talked about how it's often sounded like Christian language, words like does God love us or grace? Those are not necessarily ideas that we hear a lot from the Bema or I would say in Jewish conversation. But the other part to what you raised about the pluralistic tent, I do think that it's like, why alienate anybody? If we talk about God, we might lose the non-believers. And there are a lot of Jews who would say, I think on one foot and without having given it much thought, I don't believe. I don't have faith. I'm a Jew without faith. And, you know, even in our study group, we've run into this without naming names of someone who feels incredibly, I think, deeply about his Jewish connection and would say that he feels nothing in synagogue. Um, there's a lot of Jews like that, and I don't judge them, but I think we have to acknowledge that it's that barrier that sometimes keeps the conversation from happening at all. Yeah, we could. Uh, there's a lot going on in that study group, because actually when we had those conversations about God and we've done a lot of learning together, the gap between 
between those who talk about the deep spiritual sensibilities that they have for which essentially lived religion is the obstacle. And I was on kind of the other side of that, which is no, lived religion is the only thing that kind of makes sense to me, <laughs> that the spiritual piece is so mysterious and so confusing that I can't make that the center of my religious life paradoxically. That is just a huge gap. But I, I do want to push you personally a little bit here, Abby, because here's a little bit of cheap analysis, which is I'm like watching a kind of Kaplanian move in Abby Pogrip, which is you started with Stars of David, which is people talking about their Jewish identity. You go to the holidays, so it's like lived Judaism, and now you're seeking something that's not just about the lived practice of Judaism. And the Jewish yearbook, which I loved, was you're kind of redoing like this A.J. Jacobs year of living biblically of like, I'm going to enter into the Jewish calendar and see what this is about. And it was filled with wonder. And then the wonder turns to the divine. And it just feels like this searching, kind of a clear journey from the secular to the religious. And I'm curious whether that you're not doing something just descriptive. Oh, there's a pandemic going on. I want to talk to people like God. There's got to be something of a search that's going on here. And I'd love if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, this is where you're going to get me a little speechless because you're a good therapist, <laughs> Jewish therapist, uh, in your diagnosis. I, and I think it's not something I've wholly admitted, to be honest with you. Uh, no one's asked me that, and I haven't really admitted it, even in the pieces themselves. I'm kind of keeping a distance. I'm trying to introduce each one. Just for those who haven't read it, each one is a Q&A, and I adhere, obviously, to the verbatim language. But it's highly edited because each conversation, as you know, because I did one with you, is an hour or more long, and I have to bring it down to 2,200 words or so. It's a long way of saying that I'm not being as honest as I might have been about what's driving me here. And I think that, you know, there is some sense of, you know, I always hate the word searching because it just sounds a little Oprah to me, although I love Oprah, that I do have the feeling that there is something or someone walking this walk with me and kind of not just walking with me, kind of nudging me from behind. It's a little bit of the zets to use the Yiddish word of like, you're not finished. And, you know, as you know, personally, because we've studied together so much, the way I've often come at the spiritual or any kind of feeling is through the intellectual. I need to understand what's on the page or what this tradition is or what this text means in order for me to even have a window into feeling something from it. And I think that's in some way been a crutch, even though I, I still am a huge believer in study. I think that there's something that, you know, Ellie Kaufer, who is another one of my teachers, said, Abby, sometimes you have to abandon the cognitive and live in the, in the non-cognitive space. He was saying this before Slichot, where he was like, I'm going to send you this liturgy in advance so you have some sense. This is during my Jewish year. But at a certain point, Abby, you have to put the tallest over your head and just feel and just sing. Like, stop with the learning and the knowing. And I think that's been a bit of a personal challenge for me is to kind of feel free enough and entitled enough, frankly, to, to explore what is a little less explainable. Do you think that this is, I don't want to say genetic, maybe biological. Do you, I, I've, I've long wondered whether whether faith is not genetic, but maybe epigenetic, that it's something that a predisposition to be the kind of person who can wrap their talit around their head and just feel some of what Heschel gets out with radical amazement. It's not an anti-intellectual. Sometimes the intellectual is part of the pathway to that. I don't think even Eli Confer, he's not saying stop doing that, do this. He's saying actually that the study of Torah conditions you in some ways to this. But I do wonder whether there's something built in baked in that maybe it's possible that some people can really do the spiritual work the exercise to be prepared 
for the possibility of the feeling of the encounter. But I also, I wonder whether some of us are just not, not wired that way. It's funny. And I know we'll get, I hope we'll get to your interview, but you said, I'm not a God person. And it's obviously a much more layered, complex interview than that line. But I think that resonates for a lot of people. I'm not a God person. And it struck me how many rabbis I interviewed for this series who said they have to work at it. It's a discipline. It's learned. It's practiced. I don't think people think of faith that way. And that was kind of not just eye-opening, but comforting to me. And maybe this is something like you work out in the gym, that you can work on some kind of either connection to God. I mean, all these words start sounding very crunchy, but so many of the clergy and scholars talked about presence, God's presence. And I kept pushing them, like, what does that mean to you? What does that feel like? When have you felt it? But you know what it comes down to, honestly, Yehuda, is, and even Yitz Greenberg said, like, if you have felt it, it was probably there. And that's something I'm not sure that you would ascribe to or sign on to, but I certainly have felt that in my life. Like, you know what? I felt it, and maybe I was right. And part of this search was maybe to shore it up, to substantiate it a little bit, so I'm not kind of flying by the seat of my pants. Yeah, I really, I got to tell you, I really struggle with this. The quote that you're mentioning from Yitz Greenberg is, you asked him, uh, what about you personally? Do you feel God's presence? And by the way, I agree with you as I was reading through a lot of these pieces, the language of presence, the language of intimacy was like an undercurrent through a lot of these pieces. And so Yitz responds and says, I'm not saying I have it often or frequently, but there are moments in life where I've really felt I'm not walking alone, even when no one else agrees with me. I don't want to make it sound exaggerated, but it's a sense of presence, both the experience of the personal, objective, extraordinarily all-powerful universal force, but also, and this for me is one of the great gifts of religion, if you work at it, you're not alone. It goes on and says, even when you're sick, when you're cut off, when you're struggling, or a moment where you're so terribly ashamed of yourself that you really wish you could disappear into the woodwork, you're not alone. Somebody is not only with you, but loves you and cares about you. I find that very helpful. Let's put it that way. And again, it doesn't happen every day. Oh, man. I mean, this was hard because as one of the things we talked about, which I don't think isn't going to be in the print interview, so we can elaborate on it here. You even mentioned something to this effect when we were talking, because I was talking about my own struggles with faith. And you alluded to this. And I was kind of blown away by it because so much of Greenberg's theology in the 20th century was preparing ourselves post-Holocaust for the loneliness that comes with the sense that the covenant is actually really broken. There's a grasping here. There's a brokenness, a deep brokenness. And that's why he says, don't worry, I don't feel this often, but it's still there. And I, I do feel that so much of this theology is so human in the sense that we do want and need a sense of intimacy. We want to transcend our loneliness. And I get really nervous about filling that deep black hole that we all as humans have with God. You know, Adam Klickfeld, who's a conservative rabbi in L.A., he took the question, you know, each one of these interviews is framed around a question just so people could feel a little bit like they could get their arms around it. And his was, is God good? And his answer is basically that God is the antidote to loneliness. Obviously, he talks about God making Adam a partner because it's not good to be alone. But it was that idea that God has created, you know, a shidduch for all of us. Again, it may sound facile, but there's something about what you're describing of the loneliness that kept coming through, that there's a sense you're not alone. There's a sense you're not abandoned. I just want to mention with Yitz Greenberg, for those who don't know his personal history, because he speaks about it, I think, very personally, and that's not 
not typical always for him, is that he experienced a pretty seismic loss um, in his son, JJ, in his early 30s, who was killed by a car in Israel, bus in Israel, and just how his impulse was to pray right away and to pray in such a way that he doesn't actually believe anymore, which is that you can pray for help from God to save you in that moment. And then he describes to me that even as he did it, he knew it isn't the way it works. So to me, to see someone who is as much of a giant in the Jewish world as Yitz Greenberg struggle, as you say, with like, I need God, but I know God isn't that God anymore, but I'm still praying. You know, that kind of gets at, you know, I'm not really answering it, but I'm I'm seeing the thorniness of this with faith is that I don't think that Yitz has ever abandoned God although there are times where I would think looking at his life that he could feel abandoned and yet finding that frame around it that kind of can, can sustain loss like that, I think is pretty hard, at least for me, to kind of sign on to. Hi, I'm Claire Suprin. And if you're listening to Identity Crisis, you're probably curious about the major ideas and debates of the day affecting Jews in America. So I have great news for you. I'm the co-editor with Yehuda Kurtzer of The New Jewish Canon, a book that's out this summer. You can find out more about it at newjewishcanon.com. In this book, we've gathered all Jewish ideas that were expressed between 1980 and 2015. Well, maybe not quite everything, but it contains major texts and debates that were vitally important to the American Jewish community, along with a series of reflective essays by today's thinkers that explain the debates and their importance. Read about it and how to buy it at newjewishcanon.com. The text that I gave you first to look at together was a piece of Talmud from Tractate Hagiga, which picks up on this Deuteronomic curse that God offers of, I'll hide myself on that day. And one of the rabbis says, it's a minority opinion in the Talmud, but I find it to be a piece of radical truth, a minority opinion that says, the Jews are the people of God's hiddenness. In other words, you want to be a Jew, you have to identify with hiddenness. And I guess the condescending thing I'll say is that I find that the response to loneliness of I'm going to fill it in, as opposed to the overwhelming devastation of confronting existential loneliness, that you actually are alone. I don't know, it just feels easy. It feels some of the hard work is actually confronting real loneliness and saying, no, I can't just fill it in with God's invisible presence. And I don't, maybe it's just I don't know what it feels like when you say, I've always felt that there's a presence with me pushing me from behind. Yeah, I understand what you're saying about really confronting the loneliness and not kind of squirming out of the truth of it in that moment. But would you, if someone comes to you and says, is there any way out of this loneliness that involves God? How would you answer that? I guess what I'm wary of is that is a shortcut. You know, when we were starting to work on our response as an institute to the pandemic, we were brainstorming names. And we had just put out a curriculum on Israel Diaspora called Together and Apart. And so I suggested, I was kind of making a joke, but I actually thought it was right. Actually, let's put out a new curriculum called Together and Apart and Alone. And everyone's like, no, we can't do that. It's too sad. But part of me said, no, let's actually acknowledge that one of the existential challenges that we're going to be facing as human beings is being alone. The best antidote that we can provide to each other's loneliness is each other. Let's help strengthen people's families and communities. I don't want to tell the all of the people who live alone in America, don't worry, I don't need to take care of you because God will. I don't think that's what we mean when we say that. But what I worry about is the instrumentalizing of God to be the the partner in, in the relationships that we wish that we had. You know, Adam Klickfeld, you mentioned, analogizes marriage to relationship with God. I just worry about all of that, that instrumentalizing. And does it exonerate us in some ways from doing the work of solving for our loneliness 
by putting God in that story. Well, I love when you said to me, this is one of your quotes, let's hold up the ambivalence, our struggle. Let's make that the posture of religion in the world. And what I loved about that is I think that's actually kind of sitting in the truth of it all, which is that people struggle. People struggle every day. And this is what's been so interesting about this series. I had assumed there would be more certainty (laughs) than there was, even though others didn't articulate it quite the way you did. You know, can you be pious and ambivalent at the same time? But kind of except for the one Chabad rabbi I interviewed, Shalom Lipsker, from the Bal Harbor Large Synagogue in Florida, there wasn't this positing of God absolutely operating in the world, and you should basically follow those rules, and you will kind of be living a meaningful life. Like, there is a right and wrong. It's not that we don't have free will, according to Lipsker, but the idea is that there is a blueprint to follow, and I think you're very anti-blueprint, but religion just feels like don't you have to believe in certain things? Like, what is a religion otherwise without a certain kind of faith? Yeah, I'm more of a strategic plan person than a blueprint person, you know. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about chuva if we can, talk about repentance, because it's obvious that this series is motivated by Elul. You talk about this in your introduction to this series. One of the texts that you use, I know you asked all of your interlocutors to provide a text, which is somewhat of an anchor and a little bit of a springboard. And one of the texts that you use, I think is from Halevi with the phrase, when I went out to greet you, you were coming out to greet me, which I think is, by the way, inscribed in our synagogue's ark. I think that's the verse that's there. And it also echoes with this rabbinic idea that is prevalent around Elul, describing God as a king in the field, which is meant to suggest that sometimes the king goes and walks among the people and the surprising experience that a person experiences when they, they stand up from hard work in the field and the king is actually with them in the field. So there's a lot of language of intimacy around Elul. What do you think is the tshuva agenda for us right now? What does repentance look like in the middle of a period of where I know many of us are feeling already a sense of a lot of brokenness personally and professionally and in America? And what do do you think the repentance agenda is? I mean, so much of what came through these interviews was responsibility. That whether you say you believe that you're God's partners, and we can argue all day about whether God's creation was incomplete, and that's our role is to figure out how to help complete it, Uh, although that comes through a million times over in these interviews. What really struck me was a sense of, what do you do? Like, as we sit there and we listen to this liturgy, Unatan Tokef is problematic for a million reasons for people, but also very powerful. If we're being judged, or if we know we only have another year, maybe another month, what are we doing with it? And to me, the tshuva of this year, when you look at the suffering in the last six months or so alone, and both obviously the scourge of the virus, but also the upheaval, the the social reckoning, the racial reckoning that's gone on, it's just hard to use the cliche to sit idly by. And I think that for me, I feel a charge from all of you, all of these teachers. And it's not what are you feeling, it's what you're doing. And so whether you believe in God's presence and walking with you or not, there's a sense of believing in God's expectation or that that's what Judaism is, is that you're not just supposed to sit there and stand up and sit down in synagogue and pound your chest. You really have to look at what either small or large thing could you impact? Whose suffering could you alleviate even slightly? And that may just sound, you know, like a Hallmark card, but to me, it's actually a a pretty powerful gauntlet that's thrown down. 
Yeah, Rachel Timoner is one of the rabbis who you talked to, says, uh, God absolutely believes that human beings can endlessly improve ourselves, that there's no end to the learning curve, no limits on our capacity to become righteous. And I, I guess I identify with everything except for the phrase, God absolutely believes. I would rather just say, I absolutely believe, or we should believe about ourselves. I get nervous about the attachment of absolute to God. And what happens this year when most of American Jews, my guess, are going to be at virtual services? A smaller percentage are going to be at safe live services and probably hopefully an even smaller percentage will be at unsafe life services. So in some ways, it eliminates a lot of the routinization that you were talking about. It's not stand up, sit down, beat your chest. It can't be like if you were bored on a Zoom service, don't go, right? Um, so I wonder whether there's kind of interesting chuva opportunity created by the loneliness of this experience by the, the elimination of the pageantry. And also the elimination of togetherness. Like I was thinking, I've been thinking a lot, and obviously I'm very involved in Central Synagogue, and I love it as as a Jewish home, but so much of it is being together, who you see. You know, not just the schmooze. It's being alongside someone when you are, you know, going through that vidui and feeling like this is a collective repentance that we're doing. There's a point to it. We could be doing this in our living rooms, but we're not. And now we're doing it in our living rooms, wherever. So that to me is just going to be really interesting of, when you can kind of be anywhere and you can kind of opt out or you can put, you know, whatever picture up on Zoom so that you're not actually, people don't know that you've gone to the bathroom or you've gone to read a book or grab a bite when you're not fasting. There's really a lot of challenge of kind of focus this year. And I just think that that's part of it is, you know, how much does it matter to us that this is a communal religion? And those of us who do go to a synagogue, how much we prioritize it now that we really don't you know, we, we can force our kids to sit there if we have young kids. But I think it's going to be very interesting this year, that idea of like community used to be built into this because you kind of had to show up. And for those who, who run on guilt, you kind of felt awful if you didn't go at least on these two holidays. But I think also just to what you're getting at is that this better look different. I don't think this can just be a frontal experience this year, even on Zoom. I know Central is trying all kinds of ways to reinvent it. And I, I heard on your podcast when you were talking to Rick Jacobs and the head of the uh, conservative movement, who I, whose name is escaping me. Yeah, now. Jacob Lumenthal. Yeah. If you're not thinking differently, you're not going to survive. And I think that that's actually not a bad thing this year or any time to have a reckoning on how we do things and how we make it matter. Yeah, I'm pretty bullish on post-pandemic synagogues, actually, because um, I think it's probably true that if there's no guilt anymore about not showing up, you don't have to show up. But I, I think for all the reasons that we were talking about earlier about what role theology and seeking and community actually serve in people's lives, and I say this a lot in a lot of my talks, that with all of our changes in the American Jewish community, the fundamental anthropological conditions of humankind haven't changed that much in 30 years, that we want and need community and purpose and meaning and companionship. So eliminating all of that stuff, when we have the opportunity to go back to shul, I think many of us want it to be better, but we're going to go back to shul because we're going to be looking for those things and we're going to realize a, a great deal of what we've lost. I, I've been watching in the synagogue world all of the various adaptations. One rabbi said to me, even now, this rabbi is fielding calls from congregants saying, Rabbi, I want to make sure that I have my seat in shul. 
the rabbi is like, what part of global pandemic, no services, didn't you understand? Like there are going to be live services in a tent outside. You don't have that. Does, your seat doesn't exist in the world. It's not like a thing you're saving. And I've been trying to adjust myself psychologically to, okay, I'm going to have to do Yom Kippur morning services. I'm leading them in River, in a tent in Riverdale. We have two hours and 15 minutes max. So you can do the sad version of two hours and 15 minutes where you feel you've lost, or you can try to think about how do I actually get the best bang for our buck and also try to investigate what does meaning look like in the season. And it's just not going to be the fun type of shul that we're usually accustomed to going to. Well, when I was interviewing Rabbi Amy, Amy Schwartzman, who's been a pulpit rabbi for 40 years, which not a lot of people can say, uh, at Road of Sholem in Virginia, Falls Church, Virginia, she talked about these Zoom, not just shivas, but uh, but it's just a Zoom and phone call, end of life pastoral work. And her frame was this idea of, of creating a mikdash for wherever we are you know, a sacred place wherever we are, that for her, you create the portal to God, and then you can, and then the presence arrives, essentially. We create the divinity. And I, that spoke to me in the sense that I have seen, because I've been on some of these shivas, that there is more intimacy. You used that word before. There is, in a way, more spirituality to see the faces of the mourners. You know, usually, at least in a funeral, their backs are to me. I'm standing behind them in the pews. And at a shiva, maybe I have two minutes on a line, in someone's living room um, while other people eat locks. I mean, this is a time where their faces are right in front of you and they see ours. And it's just a snapshot again. You know, when we talk about the divine, whether you put a word on it or not, there is something about the people who have shown up for each other and the way that others are holding each other and the way that that rabbi has to, Amy was talking about being on the phone with someone in the hospital not knowing if they could hear her, but, you know, essentially giving them the vidui and the, and the final prayers and just the power of that, you know, where she would have normally said, oh, technology is not the time for essentially a send off into another world. It, it has taken on, I mean, it's to your point, we have different definitions now, I think, of where we find not just our synagogue, but God, spirituality and each other in this moment. And I think that that actually is kind of pretty exciting. I mean, exciting. I don't want to talk about mourning as being exciting, but a reinvention that has actually in some ways been an improvement, a deepening. You know, in your last book, in, in the My Jewish Yearbook, you kind of studied all the holidays from the perspective of how they're lived in practice. And we're now on the verge of a full Jewish year where all these holidays are not as they're practiced, right? I remember uh, sitting on our couch on Purim, which is a big holiday in our household. It's a big deal. There's like six months worth of costume planning. And we have years ahead of us of planned out costumes. So it's a big thing. And I just remember the sadness around of like, and our kids basically did when they wanted to take off their costumes. They're like, I don't care that much about Purim. I want to be at shul, right? And and I couldn't. And at the time, I remember thinking, you know, it's fine. We'll get through Purim. We'll get through Passover. But it's really going to be hard to get through Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And now it's just what we're going to do. So first of all, I'm wondering, like, is there a sequel of my Jewish year? And let's take one step back, which is to look at this year and how how you're experiencing this Jewish year, as opposed to the version of the Jewish year, which was so much about intimacy with the people you were talking to. And, and I remember you flew to Los Angeles for Sukkot and you were in all these different rabbis' sukkahs. So I'd love to get a sense of what your holidays are feeling like and looking like this year. Yeah. I mean, right now, that Sukkot tour feels really poignant to me. I'd love to be able to go back there. 
people weren't house proud. They were sukkah proud, taking me everywhere in the Pico Robertson area and all around LA. I would say that this year, I mean, certainly, and, and I think you know as someone who's kind of affiliated and involved with Jewish institutions, they're on fire. Everybody, I've never seen so much content. I've never seen so much teaching. And there's great fecundity in that. But I think also, you know what? Jewish moves, and that sounds like a, a stupid slogan, but we are used to being together, hugging each other. And in my case, where I, I'm lucky enough to go and speak at a lot of JCCs and federations, I have a lot of people spitting salmon at each other when they're speaking with so much emotion that they want to convey their points to me. I miss the spitting salmon. That, that's something that I am mourning. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right for, I know, you know, you're not big on Jewish cliches, but we are a people that kind of is on top of each other and we really can't be right now. But I would say in terms of the holidays and in terms of kind of endurance and resilience, which is something that came away from doing my Jewish year and certainly from this investigation about God, is this, like, I, the fact that I could call kind of almost anybody and suddenly have the most challenging alive, kind of even electric, I would say, conversation that makes me think about my own life and my own priorities and my own memories and a sense of whether I'm connected to something or not and a sense of whether my ancestry is somehow kind of in my DNA or not. Those things, it's like on a dime, I can do that. And I'm lucky as a journalist to create that laboratory for myself and kind of know who to call and be able to. But I think it's accessible to all of us. Like our teachers are right there. And I'm not saying we're dependent on them. I, I may be someone who leans on teachers more than others. But I think those conversations and the kind that obviously I've been lucky enough to have with you are, to me, the stuff that makes none of this die, that makes it all just stay really not just alive, but in a way demanding in the best sense. And so, yeah, I wish I could go back and do my Jewish year during the pandemic, because I think all of these holidays are being reinvented. I think I, there's no audience that would have the stomach for it. Uh, someone had suggested that every one of these holidays is different in Israel, and I wish I could go explore that sometime. But as you know, like the learning never ends, and, and there's something bottomless and enervating about that, and also completely energizing about it, too. Yeah, one of the things that I've tried to do with my kids, because this has been a totally different experience, also just of parenting and home life over the last six months uh, has been, it's been for me to listen to their moments of, of seeking and asking and try to engage with those on whatever terms they are. So like this past Sunday over Labor Day weekend, we had a loss in our family. My uncle passed away early in the pandemic, not from the pandemic, but it was like the first Zoom Shiva because it was right when the rules came in. And so my little one said, at, you know, one point over the weekend, you know, I miss Uncle Ira. So I was like, oh, this is, let's, we're going to go to the, we're going to go to the cemetery. And we drove out, which is a thing that you do anyway, before the holidays, before Yisker. And I just felt like it was, okay, here's a grasping and a looking. And I think our job as teachers and as parents is to just listen for that grasping and, and allow our children, our students to feel that they can grasp at something, uh, even without answers. And we had a powerful 15 minutes and then, you know, bad kosher pizza in Queens. Um, Abby, last last question for you. You asked people to send in texts, and I know you're studying with people with their texts. Any other texts that you would just throw out and say something that you've been, either you heard from people that you want to amplify or another Jewish text that has come back for you in this process of asking people about God, something that is kind of rattling around for you that you can't let go of? I mean, this is going to maybe sound too pat, but... It was David Wolpe who talked about the passage in Kings from which we took the title for the forward series, Still Small Voice. And it is this idea that 
we think of God in our sort of pediatric frame as the lightning and the thunder, the crashing, the Red Sea parting, the miracles, and the kind of grand gestures. And the idea that that's not where to look really is resonant for me, if I'm speaking very personally. And I think that my reaction to those words is echoed by so many of these interviews that it's in the smaller moments. It's in kind of the minutia of blessing, as I put it, I think, in the introduction, that that I'm acutely aware of during this time. I, I was before, but particularly now. What does it mean to be grateful and to find a certain kind of divinity, whether you use that word or not? So I would just say to look at that phrase and just think about where that still small voice is for each one of us. And maybe you don't hear it, maybe you don't feel it, but I think at least it's worth taking a second look. That's beautiful. It's such a ubiquitous phrase that we lose we lose sight of its theological radicalism, of what it means for God to be not that but this. Uh, and especially in this time of so much quiet and so much loneliness, where you can actually hear other people's voices in ways that we couldn't before or we should have been before, uh, to listen for that quiet is uh, is extraordinary. Well, thanks for listening to our show and, and special thanks to my to my guest this week and my friend Abby Pogrebin. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by David C. Kalman and edited by Tali Cohen. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show, and you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org to tell us. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. We'll see you next week, and thanks for listening.